Hello and welcome to the Ride Around the Murray Festival. I'm Jane Rawson. I'd like to acknowledge the Wiradjuri elders and the Wiradjuri country on which the Ride Around the Murray Festival is based in Albury. I'm coming to you from Lutruwida Aboriginal land, which we call Tasmania. I acknowledge with deep respect the traditional owners of the land, the Palawa people, who belong to the oldest continuing culture in the world. Welcome to our viewers and listeners on YouTube and on Facebook Live. Toward the end of the session, I'll be taking your questions and you can submit those via your chat function. In this session, Animal Magnetism, I'm talking with Chris Flynn, Laura Jean Mackay and James Bradley about their wonderful new novels, Mammoth, the animals in that country. Sorry, Laura, I've got the prototype version here, not the real live version. And ghost species, oh, getting a lot of shine off that. Hi, Chris. Chris is also the author of The Glass Kingdom and A Tiger in Eden, which was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Book Prize. His fiction and non-fiction have appeared in The Age, The Australian, Griffith Review, Mianchen, Australian Book Review, Saturday Papers, and a lot of other places. And he's conducted interviews for the Paris Review and is a regular presenter at literary festivals across Australia. Chris is coming to us from Phillip Island next to a penguin sanctuary. Laura Jean is the author of Holiday in Cambodia, shortlisted for three national book awards in Australia. Her work appears in The Guardian, Best Australian Stories and the North American Review. And she's a lecturer in creative writing at Massey University with a PhD from the University of Melbourne focusing on literary animal studies. She's the animal expert presenter on ABC Listen's Animal Sound Safari and is coming to us from New Zealand. And James Bradley is an author and critic his other books are the novels Rack, The Deep Field, The Resurrectionist, and Clade. There are some books not on here. He has heaps of books. A Book of Poetry, Paper Nautilus, and The Penguin Book of the Ocean. His work has won or been shortlisted for a number of major Australian and international literary awards. And in 2012, he won the Pascal Prize for Australia's Critic of the Year and is coming to us from Sydney. Hello, everybody. Um, to kick off, I wonder if each of you could give the viewers a short description of your book, starting with Chris. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> a short description. Oh, yeah. It you know. began in 13,000. No. Um, <laughs> so my book, Mammoth, is um, basically set the night before a natural history auction in New York in 2007, which was a real auction. And all of the bones that are on display that are about to go up for sale the next day um, are megafauna and other creatures. And they are talking to each other, um, explaining how they came to wind up on sale at the auction. And in doing so, the book jumps back to the end of the Ice Age and to the um, start of the 19th century, where, which is when um, several of the bones were dug up and it follows their journey in particular between about 1800 and 1804 in America, France and Ireland, particularly the mammoth as he is transported around and displayed in museums um, for the edification of um, the two-legged um, people who have no idea what he is. Um, so it's a bit of a romp through history um, it, it, um, as the animals observe our behaviour through time. There you go. It's got lots of good jokes in it. Uh, Laura, you go. <laughs> Tēnā koutou. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, it's nice to be here for a moment in Australia from New Zealand. Um, so 
this is the animals in that country. I feel like every time I try to give a um, a description of it in my own words, book sales actually go down. (laughs) 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 Um, But I'll give it a go. Uh, So this book asks uh, what would happen if uh, the language barrier was taken away and we could talk to other animals. And it's told through the eyes of Jean, who is a woman who works in a wildlife park. She loves a drink. She loves a smoke. She doesn't like people very much, but she does really love a dingo called Sue. And when Sue can, well, she doesn't speak, but when she starts to understand what Sue is saying with her body, they go on this epic road trip through sort of pandemic riddled what we might call Australia. I thought that's pretty good. I'd buy a copy. Oh, thanks, Jane. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> to add to the three I have already. <laughs> How about you, James? Tell us about ghost species. Uh, I, I now have a copy to hold up as well because everyone else did. Um, uh, ghost species is uh, begins kind of now. It is about a billionaire who has a plan to re-engineer the Earth's climate by resurrecting extinct species and rebuilding ancient ecosystems. And within that, he's got this plan to recreate Neanderthals. And it's about the scientists who create the first of those children. And it's about that child growing up over about the next 20 years against a kind of background of hastening climate catastrophe. Good summary. Um, Thank you all. we, we all know that Australian readers really love novels about like war and convicts and beaches and coming of age and marriages in disarray and that all of these novels are about humans. Um, we also know that writing a novel takes a really long time and is very painful. Uh, so what, what was it that made each of you want to embark on a book featuring a non-human character? And did you ever wonder if you'd made a terrible mistake, Laura? I honestly, when I started writing the animals in that country, I thought that it would be quite fun. I thought it was quite a fun premise to imagine what other animals were saying. But of course, as we all know, as soon as we start to look at human animal or human non-human relationships, we realise how truly evil and nasty the human species is. So um, I worked at this book for around seven years, seven to 10. And I'd say about halfway through, I realized what a terrible idea it was, but I'd written so much that, and I told everyone I was writing this thing. So I just had to keep going and try to make it not a terrible idea and something that that might live on the page and actually be both enjoyable to read, I hope, um, and, and start to get into some of those intense ideas around how we are in the world with other species and how we might be in the future. James, James, what made you want to write about a Neanderthal child? Uh, two things. First of all, I, I would argue my protagonist is human, which is one of the things the book's about, um, rather than non Yeah, but you're messing with the premise of my question if you say that. <laughs> <laughs> So to go back to your question, I was once killing time at Perth Airport and I remember looking at the Australiana section. They had a kind of Australiana section in the bookshop and they had 37 titles and one of them was not about war. The other 36 were all about war. <laughs> so, yes, <laughs> our self-perception is very much connected to war. Um, Look, I, I guess I wanted to 
think about what it must be like to be different in the way that the Neanderthal child is in the book, but also to think about various kinds of, I guess, kind of loneliness, because uh, um, there's a sense that she has been recreated and she is this kind of isolate. She, she's the only one of her kind in a really, a really profound way that I think is quite difficult for us, us to imagine. And it seemed to me that that, that kind of loneliness was a great way of thinking about, I guess, a whole series of questions around the kind of process of extinction, the disappearance of species, that sense that the world is growing lonelier all the time, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Chris, yours is, is primarily a historical fiction novel, I guess, um, and there are heaps of interesting human characters in it. What, what made you decide that the mammoth was the right person to take over narration of this? Well, I, I kind of like how you've couched the question about why we're writing these books, Jane, because um, this book was a bit of a reaction from me to those very typical Australian books, um, which is, you know, the the grim road trip, the uh, the sort of outback novel, the, the wartime history novel. I was sick to death of reading those books and the, the lack of imagination and you know, fantasy um, and um, even science fiction that we see in, a, in Australian literature has always been a frustration to me. That's why I've always, you know, got on well with James and, and loved what he does because he's been um, working in that field, um, but in sort of mainstream literature. And, and that's that's uh, a good encouragement to me. So M Mammoth for me was, I wanted to do um, historical fiction, but from a really alternative, sort of almost fantastical perspective, but grounded in as much reality as I could. So there's lots of, most of the human characters in it are real people who actually existed. And so they're just being observed by these creatures who are on sale at, at the auction. Um, as to whether that was a terrible idea or not, um, I think it's absolutely a terrible idea. And I quickly realized that. And I just thought, ah, to hell with it. I'm just going to go ahead anyway, because you know I'm 48 years old now, and this is my third book, and I've had I've got a million ideas for books, and they're all terrible. That's what I've realised. <laughs> all my ideas are terrible, um, but I'm still going to do them. <laughs> so uh, as long as I can find as long as I can find a gullible publisher um, to take me on and actually put the book out, then I'm going to continue writing terrible books that. Um, uh, or there, well, not, maybe not terrible books, but terrible ideas that, and, and trying to make them work. Yeah, and I think that is kind of the amazing thing about all of these books. I can imagine as the author trying to explain to someone what it is I'm trying to write and having them go, what? Why? And But then when you read the book, you're like, of course, why? Of course, this is great. This is such a good idea. So clearly you're all very good at writing. Well done. It does, it does create a problem, though, because... Um, as soon as you release a book like this, you're constantly, like any of our books, you're constantly having to explain what they are. Like, it's yeah. not like people just walk into a shop and they say, oh, what's that? Oh, it's got a, it's got a, a ram or something on the cover. It's, it's about animals. I prefer oh, okay. to call it a like, power ram, actually, Chris. A power ram, right. <laughs> yeah. But you, have to, you have to explain what the books are about. And so, therefore, you, you, you automatically have that barrier um, between you and the reader, um, 
it's not like we're not working in that form of Australian fiction that it's like super easily accessible to someone who just wanders into a bookshop. They pick up a book. It's a crime thriller about someone who has returned to the small town where they grew up uh, and there's a murder that happened there years ago and they're somehow caught up in it. Um, you know, there's a million of those books and people instantly know what they are. But these books are a bit uh, trickier. So it's good that we're doing all these events because we get a chance to actually explain to people what the books are about. I, I, when, I have a very good friend who's a science fiction person, editor, and, and when I told him what I was writing about, he said, oh, well, I won't read it then. I don't read books with Neanderthals in them. <laughs> <laughs> Which didn't feel very supportive at the time, I have to say. It's a bit of a subgenre, I guess, Neanderthal fiction. <laughs> the good news is that all those people who've been dying to read books with Neanderthals in them now finally have a chance, thanks to James and a couple of other people. And I think that's the great thing about these sorts of books is there are plenty of people who have, have read enough crime fiction stories set in small towns now and are desperate for something else to read and... The, your books are all awesome examples of new ways of thinking about writing in Australian fiction. They're, they're really, really great. Um, I'm interested in whether it was important to each of you that your characters were factually accurate as well as working as characters. I mean, they all work, your, your dingo, your Neanderthal, your mammoth all work really well as characters. Did you feel like you needed to do stacks of research before you launched into this? Or did you just go, ah, oh, as long as people are interested in them, that'll, that's enough? Oh, a wombat just ran across the hill, animals. <laughs> um, James, did you have to do a lot of research? Um, so, well, I did a little bit. Um, I don't know. I, I One of the things that I always feel really shifty about is that I keep ending up doing things. I and mean, Chris was talking about the, the, the kind of infusion I'm doing where people talk about all the research I did. And I was like, I didn't do all that much research. Like I read a few books and then, and then kind of made stuff up. But but uh, look, I decided quite early on, and, and I do this quite often with books, is that people aren't very interested in the detail of the research. Like what they want it to do is to feel plausible. And so what you need to do is to find you need to know enough to write without feeling anxious about what you don't know, in a sense. Um, but with this, there were some real things about trying to think my way around what Neanderthals would have been like. Uh, and the answer to that is we know a lot, but the scientists all seem to argue with each other about what it means, um, as scientists I want to do. Um, uh, so I did a thing quite early on about just deciding a few things about some some kind of parameters of what my character was like and then kind of working with them but and look they're informed by the research <laughs> let's put it that way they're informed by the research you know and i mean and there's a kind of I, I guess there's a lot of kind of climate stuff in it as well and that again is informed by the science but is not narrowly i guess kind of narrowly reliant on the science you know so some of it i mean but having said that i was about to say some of it's a bit worse possibly than the science says it's going to be i think as each week passes it becomes clearer and clearer that probably i'm underestimated what things are going to be i mean it's really interesting why I, when i was writing it the with the climate stuff you know there's all this stuff about fires all the way through it and then you know that that sense that the reality is lapping you while you're writing it you know the, 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 these things are getting so much worse while you're actually writing than than the thing you've invented that's meant to be in the future so 
Yeah, maybe we shouldn't let you write anymore. Maybe you have a power to change things more quickly than the science says they will. No more books for you. I wish um, that were the case. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Laura, Laura, how about you? Was, was, what was your research process like for figuring out how animals actually talk? I Oh, well, I mean, I did so much research. I You know, I'm a doctor of animals talking in books now um, and I did a lot of physical research as well. I, I lived in wildlife parks. I I went to the States and, and spent time in sanctuaries. But as James said, I mean, I, and I've got it all written down somewhere and there's many, many folders, but it comes down to, you know, sort of the way that a crocodile's leg, um, you know, um, bends and as they launch off the sand, um, you know, to go and catch some prey or the way that a chimpanzee in a Florida sanctuary who used to star in movies looked at me like I was his friend or the sound of a refrigerator in a caravan, which I recorded for some reason and just listened to over and over again, even though it doesn't appear anywhere in the novel. These little, it's a very scattergun approach to researching uh, when it comes to actually sort of representing the animals and especially the way they speak, um, I don't even know if I'd call it research as in a com rather than a complete rethinking of the way that I write dialogue and think about dialogue. Uh, I started writing bad songs. Um, I put those bad songs through Google Translate and translated them into Latin uh, and sometimes Finnish. Uh, and then I would put them on the page and, and move them around until somehow the voice of a dingo comes through who speaks uh, in, in, I guess, poetic line breaks and parentheses it's it's not a it's not a very easy thing to explain i don't know that i'll ever write that way again but it was what the novel and the animal dialogue needed because i'm really passionate about dialogue and the way that dialogue is and how it what it does to characterization and to action um but to make a mosquito really come through <laughs> um in a through in a dialogic way it, yeah it was it was a real test of my of my abilities as a human and a writer. Yeah, yeah, it's such a tricky thing to take on and I think you really nailed it. I mean, obviously I can't speak mosquito, so I can't say if it was accurate or not, but it's the, the balance that you've struck between that alienation and dislocation from the voice, because it's not human, but still having comprehensibility at an intellectual and an emotional level, I think is it's superb, it's really, really great. I love it. Um, Good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, how about you, Chris? You, I mean, you can't go like hang out with mammoths like Laura could with dingoes. What, what was your process like for getting inside a mammoth head? I think sometimes the authenticity of research can hang over a novelist's head a bit like the Sword of Damocles and that um, when, when you have a book that comes out, there's this intense pressure um, to um, convince people that you did it right and so you have to basically, whether you did research or not, um, you have to say you did. <laughs> you know, or, but, but what, what is research? Yeah. yeah. What is actual research? I mean, you know, James could read books about Neanderthals. Um, Laura's recording her refrigerator sound or something like that. And um, so, you know, it's, it, it can be many different things. And sometimes you're not even aware as an author that you're doing it. 
um, you're you know going for a bushwalk and you're accidentally researching something that will pop into your work later on and you're not even aware of it happening at the time. Um, the I didn't have, well I was sitting in the audience at the Melbourne Writers Festival years ago when um, the British writer Camilla Shamsi was on stage. Um, she was talking about her book Burnt Shadows at the time, which um, had scenes that were set in Japan immediately after, um, in Hiroshima, after the nuclear bomb had been dropped. And it was a real lesson for me sitting in the audience listening to her because she made a mistake on stage that made me realize what this writing gig, gig was all about. Um, it, it, the place was packed and someone said to her, oh, um, you must have done an incredible amount of research for this book. How long did you spend in Japan? And she, <laughs> and she said, Japan? Oh, I've never been to Japan. Really off, really offhand. And they said, but your book's set in Japan. She goes, yeah, the internet. And, and there was an audible groan in the auditorium. And a lot of people just walked out at the end. They didn't buy her book. They were actually like disgusted by the fact that she hadn't done it correctly. She hadn't gone and lived in Japan, you know, lived the life of a Japanese woman in the post-World War II period. And so therefore her book was inauthentic to them at that point. Um, and that, you know, set a little alarm bell off me. I was just early in my career then. I thought, oh, bloody hell, you have to be careful what you say when you're talking about research. You have to sort of semi, you know, be a bit sly and semi-convince people. Oh yeah, I read all these amazing, you know, books, and I spent you know, 20, 22 years of my life researching, and I did three PhDs. Uh, I mean, I did do a lot of research for the book. Don't get me wrong. I definitely have to say that now. Um, <laughs> but it, but the format of it was probably quite alternative, I guess. You know, um, it can be watching an old caveman movie. You know, that can be that can be research. Um, uh, uh, and uh, going down internet rabbit holes and indulging yourself and ordering out of print, you know, old academic books online that you're maybe only going to read one chapter of because they're so boring when you get them. Um, so yeah. I quite enjoy what you might call research, but I couldn't really define what that is. It's, For sure. it's, yeah. it's interesting though, isn't it? Oh, sorry, Camilla Shamsi, the thing you need to know about Camilla Shamsi as well as being a Booker Prize shortlisted author who writes kind of august introductions to Virago classics. She's got another life writing about Dungeons and Dragons novels, which she's really into and she writes for for tour.com. Well, unless there's two Camilla Champsies who are writers and I'm pretty sure that there are. Um, uh, but what I was going to say is there's something, I mean, I sometimes wonder whether there's a kind of anxiety about, the legitimacy of fiction like that kind of i feel like one of the things that has happened to us over the last 20 years or 30 years has been a kind of erosion of our trust in the idea of the imagination you know and so we've become mm. very very wary i think about about fiction itself so so one of the things we get very anxious about is what what is the thing that legitimates the fiction what makes it okay and research is one of the things we turn to all the time time for that and there's a kind of level at which that's i think sometimes that's a useful anxiety and particularly when we're talking about dealing with other people's stories and speaking for other people and those kinds of things that they're, they're genuine concerns but but there is also something going on there about a kind of erosion of our 
belief in the idea of fiction and what fiction does and what it's there for, that, that, that it's this kind of unruly imaginative process, you know, that doesn't always take us to places that feel comfortable or what we would expect. So, yeah, I had, a, I had an audience question um, asking about the pandemic element of my novels and they said, um, how did you know? How did you know it was going to happen? <laughs> and as much as I would have liked to have said, you know, I, I fast forwarded myself to 2020 because that's where we all want to spend more time and, you know, um, learned all the facts about pandemics and, and went back in time and, and popped it in. Um, yeah, I just had to break it to them that it was a plot device. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like this, this period um, is this period of, uh, where we're living in a dystopia now, if you will, is awakening lots of readers to the idea that there are a bunch of books out there that are imaginary. I think this is this is kind of a slightly new idea for a lot of people that they're realising that people do imagine different futures. And then when you read them, having only read very realist fiction, you're like, how did they know this would happen? But there are actually loads of books out there imagining all kinds of different futures. Anyway. <laughs> having James. said that, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, no, having, having said that, um, and I think we've all talked, touched on this um, somewhat in other discussions, we have written these books, we have all four of us have been writing these books in the last decade when the pressure of climate change and the pressure of political polarisation and, and the whole world is under pressure. So we are responding to these things just through our everyday life and that just infects our novels. So it's not surprising that we're, you know, predicting yeah. <laughs> the future because <laughs> we're just we're we're reflecting alive. we're alive. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And and Laura, I guess that kind of leads on to you. You and I have spoken before about the extinction crisis and the role that, that writers might have in either like reflecting that or combating it in some way. Um, how how important do you think that understanding of animal consciousness and an artistic representation of that consciousness might be in in fighting extinction, I guess, if that's not too long a bow to draw. Uh, almost essential, I suppose. We've spent a long time ignoring the fact that we share this planet with other species, um, you know, plant and animal, uh, and many other forms, and we we just. We're just very noisy humans. We just we just don't shut up and we go on and on about, we've been going on and on for a very long time about how fantastic we are and it's very obvious that we're not only not fantastic but pretty idiotic. Um, and that, part of the, the animal turn, this turn towards animals and the environment is necessarily a, a shutting up and listening. And I suppose because I write and that's all I can really do, um, it's important to me to uh, foreground non-human species in novels. And I'm not saying to we need to completely shift human characters aside. My novel is told from the perspective of a human character. But just to recognise that uh, maybe humans aren't the only thing in the world. And if we start to represent and listen to animals in our fiction and, and make them central characters, your cat is trying to get out the door. <laughs> Yeah, so um, just that decentering of human characters uh, and and centering of non-humans, yeah, it was essential to me in trying to address some of the ideas in the book. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And Chris, I feel like that uh, from, and you, you kind of frame your book within a few ideas about how humans should probably shut up and have made a lot of stupid mistakes. Um, is there anything that, that you would like to add to what Laura said about the role of literature in, in pushing humans out of the frame a little bit and why that might be important? Well, a bit like um, Laura and James especially, I mean, his last novel, Clade, was um, a fantastic novel um, that I listened to him speak at the Adelaide Writers' Festival about. And um, um, it was also about um, climate change and um, how the world is um, not being run very well by us us humans. And it got me thinking at the time, when I, in the early days of when I was working on this, about how one of the main sort of important themes that I wanted to talk about was extinction. But how do you how do you do that? You know, it's it's quite a it's a huge topic to talk about. Um, what's the way in? And for me, the way in was through these um, bones of extinct animals, mainly because a lot of them are being de-extincted. And James mentions this at the start of his book, um, and that's what his billionaire protector his billionaire is all about you know um, getting changing the climate of the planet by bringing back um, these creatures and and Neanderthal that are no longer around and that sounds like you know pure science fiction and it always you know as a kid I of course we all saw Jurassic Park and we imagined what it would be like to have you know long dead creatures return to the earth but it's kind of happening now um, I mean um, just yesterday the Siberian Times, which is an excellent um, newspaper for anyone who, who wants to check it out. It really is. Um, they just announced yesterday that um, a, and they had some amazing photographs, that the they have found a complete intact carcass of Ursus spilaius, which is the cave bear. And it's got flesh, blood, everything. And so they've got DNA. So that's yet another species that they're going to perhaps try to bring back. And that is kind of the terrifying tipping point because everything else they're talking about de-extincting um, are fairly innocuous creatures. There's the passenger pigeon, uh, a prehistoric horse, the Tasmanian tiger, which I guess might give you a little nip or something. Um, very uh, a very small nip around the ankles. Um, a mammoth is admittedly a huge creature to bring back, um, although there are they are probably going to do it. But it's, I mean, it could stomp you to death, but it's not going to rip your head off and, and eat you. But a cave bear? <laughs> a cave bear is, is, is a thousand kilogram, four meter high animal. It's an apex predator. And if they're going to bring one of those back, whoa, that's, you're, you're, you're starting to get into pretty scary territory there. And you know, to touch on what Laura said, that's that sort of mankind's obsession with itself and belief that we are the, the cleverest, you know, thing on the planet. When really we just make mistakes all the time, and it it and my book is kind of about showing you what might happen if we make some of those mistakes, and I, even just questioning the idea of, you know, who's collecting these bones, what purposes are they collecting them for, why do they want them. It's all to do with human hubris and arrogance, um, and you know the scientific community um, are not always um, don't don't always make the best decisions in this regard. They will probably forge forward um, and bring creatures back, whether we want them to or not, and whether the creatures want to come back or not. And 
possibly for you know noble reasons but is it going to work out probably not <laughs> James I guess you you thought quite a lot about the extinction when you were writing your book um, obviously the the hubris of a billionaire combined with some very clever sciences at the beginning of your book um, did you form any opinions about whether de-extinction should be an, an important part of our approach to climate change and to extinction? Um, I think the first thing to say is that, uh, I mean, what the thing to remember about human beings is that we are the white men of species. Like we continually overrate our own importance. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's right. I was talking to a fish scientist the other day for a piece I'm writing, and he was talking about the sensory world of fish and just saying, you know, so fish, they see more colours than us, they smell more things, they hear more things, they've got magnetic sense, they can feel the water, you know, they've got this incredibly rich sensory world. We think we're so good at everything, but they're so much better than us. And then we're like, that doesn't that, that really matter. So we are, we are the white men of species. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the de-extinction stuff's really, really interesting. I... I guess I came to the book because de-extinction seemed to me to be a really exciting metaphorical idea in a weird kind of way. Chris was talking about the the, the bear being found, the bear in the Siberian Times yesterday, and I agree. The Siberian Times is a great publication, um, but but you know I was really interested in that idea that the that the you know that the kind of deep past was kind of erupting into the present it seemed to be such a fantastic metaphor for the I guess for the kind of derangements of temporality you get with climate change. But but I I, I kind of came into this from from another direction, I was thinking about about kind of rebuilding landscapes and that kind of idea of what happens to landscapes when you put animals back into them that belong there and the way mm. that, that there's amazing studies about um, the way Yellowstone, the, the courses of the rivers change when they put wolves back, you know, um, all of that amazing stuff about a great deal of the circulation in the ocean seems to be driven by whale poo. Like, you know, this is kind of like, you know, there's all that kind of amazing sense that animals, animals influence things. And I guess once you start thinking about de-extinction, I don't know. I'd love to see a mammoth. I'd love to see a, a thylacine. What I would like to see more is us thinking about the species that aren't gone yet, you know, and actually thinking, you know, because the, the resources you have to devote to recreate the thylacine are immense, yet we mm. are losing species on a kind of you know, really rapid basis. Wouldn't it be better to invest that? You, do you know what I mean? In a sense, the just at a kind of cost benefit level it seems to me that trying to stop extinction is probably more important than de-extinction but i'm with chris i mean it, I, in as much as it's possible i'm pretty confident some version of it will happen and happen soon you know and then we can make them extinct all over again that'll be fast <laughs> On another point, human, humans often talk about how much we would love to contact alien life forms from other planets, um, how we'd love to learn from them while we're, as you say, we're killing off a whole bunch of forms of life here that we could be learning from. Um, I feel like Neanderthals, mammoths and dingoes could each give humans a hot tip about how to lead a better life. And I wonder if you could tell me what that hot tip would be, Laura. <laughs> What would you guys talk about how to, how to do a better job? I, <laughs> in, in the novel, Gene, um, the human character, sort of makes up these really daggy sort of, um, you know, uh, affirming little, what are they called, platitudes or, you know, little yeah, notes to itself, like, like, get up with a smile, run all the while, you know, 
smoke in the meantime you know just little notes to herself um and she sticks them around the house and she speaks she speaks in these sort of things like you know the goddess is dancing that sort of stuff um and I don't know whether <laughs> I don't know whether dingoes would would do this, but um, I have been I've been thinking a bit about this question, Jade, and all that came up was stop, look, and listen, which is actually an ad from the eighties about how children should and should not cross the road. You know, that's what. You, <laughs> and there's a lot of I think Take Five do a um, a little a song about it these days, just to modernise that. Uh, and it's really daggy and and silly to think that the incredible animal that is a dingo would would say this but it I guess it came to mind because I was because of that idea of us shutting up for a second and if we and to drag this really childish metaphor on I suppose we are sort of at the crossing of a road we are just about to run out of in traffic and in fact we already have and maybe we just need to stop for a second and and look at other things and listen uh that's what I've got yeah, I think that's pretty solid advice from dingoes uh how, how about mammoths what, what would mammoths tell us to do I reckon they'd probably say Get over yourselves and pull your head in um, because who do you think you are? Um, you're not better than us. Um, and that's basically human's problem in a nutshell, isn't it? Humanity's problem in a nutshell. We do think that we are the apex species, that, that, that we're top of the food chain, that, um, that the world should revolve according to our rhythms and, and that we are somehow separate from the natural world, that we are in charge of it, that we can do whatever we want to it. And, you know, Mother Nature will just take her licks and um, bounce back. Uh, and it's incredibly um, foolish way to live. Um, we could learn a lot from listening to the other species that we share the world with. Um, like James says, you know, um, I, I now want to be a fish um, or... And in Laura's book, you know, the, the characters, as soon as they realize that they can understand what animals are saying, like a huge number of people want to hear what the whales have to say. And people are wading out into the ocean, killing themselves, trying to, trying to listen to the whales. And that was a very, um, that, that really sort of touched me that moment in her book, because I thought, of course we would want to do that. But why aren't we currently doing that? <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, was that, did you want to say anything else about that? I interrupted you prematurely then. No, it was a timely interruption because I was okay. running out of steam anyway. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, we, we could make more of an effort to listen to all of these creatures now, but we're, we're sort of like, when are they going to talk to us? When are they going to bother to learn our language? And you know, um, James, do you do you, was there anything that you learned from thinking about Neanderthals that you think would be useful for us to apply now? Um, well, I, I think like both Chris and Laura, my general view is to think the lesson you want to take away is pay attention and don't be such a dick. Um, uh, look, I mean, I think I think what it would be nice for us to do is to recognise there are different ways of being in the world you know, and that our way of being in the world, our way of encountering the world is not better, as Chris said, it's just different. 
you know, but but those ways of being in the world are themselves extraordinary and individual in the way that ours is. And so what we lose when a creature goes out of the world is not just its kind of genetic material, but its culture, its it's kind of, well, I'd, there's that German notion of the Umwelt, you know, the, the kind of inner life, the inner presence of the animal, the, the inner world of the animal. And we lose that. I and mean, we lose a way of being in the world when things when things disappear. I was saying before I've been writing about fish for something, you know, and I mean, people don't think about fish, you know, and I think oftentimes we don't think about them because it's too horrible once we do. But, you know, fish recognise themselves in mirrors. Fish can point. You know, I mean, fish, fish actually engage in referential behaviour where they point at things. No other species except for humans, a couple of primates and ravens can do that. You know, some fish, rec like I say, some fish recognise themselves in mirrors, you know, and, you know, that's been the gold standard test for individual self-recognition for 50 years. You know, I think noticeably our the fact that our response to that is that oh, the, te the test must be broken tells us something about, <laughs> about our kind of preconceptions there. But, you know, like the idea that fish, something we give so little thought to, are conscious, sentient, thinking creatures with culture and, you know, kind of a way of being in the world is something that it's really worth thinking about. So, you know, yeah, it's, it, sure. it's very transformative once you think about that, that, that the notion there are other ways of being in the world. And as you well, said earlier, James, um, it, it, it's great that, that fish, you know, can point and recognise themselves in mirrors, but in a way it's those other abilities that we can't, can barely comprehend, though the ability to see colours that we will never see, um, the ability of bats to, to see the world through sonar, um, the fact that whales are these giant mammals that, that live under the earth. Um, in a way, to me, that's that's the the extraordinary intelligence of of other animals that we don't necessarily tap into or recognize enough yeah and i mean one of the things i think is really interesting and i was writing about this in something recently but you know we think we think of the things that we value about ourselves which is our culture you know language all of those kinds of things but the kind of the idea that we're these intelligent creatures who understand where we are in the world and all that kind of thing is what we think is special about ourselves. But, you know, if we look at fish or we look at cephalopods, so octopuses and squid and things like that, it's really clear that they they are the same. They are incredibly ancient. You know, it's likely that those things were swimming around in the oceans 200 million years ago, having thoughts, being intelligent, having culture that they pass from one to another. It's not something that suddenly came into the world a million years ago when we popped up. You know, it's been around for hundreds of millions of years, you know, and, and the notion that we're something special arrayed against that skip ban of time seems to me to be just unbelievably arrogant, you know. And, yeah, I think of us doing those kinds of experiments that you're talking about, like getting creatures to look in a mirror and whether they can recognise themselves and go, oh, no, they can't, they're all idiots. And I wonder what what, uh, what other species, what, what sort of experiments they're doing on us at the moment that we're wildly failing all the time. That the fish are like, have you seen this species? These, they, can't, they can't even smell properly. They're so dumb. Anyway, um. I, I thought I would ask you a little writing question for all the, the aspiring writers out there. Um, each of you writes novels, short stories, and also nonfiction. 
So when when you get an idea in your head, how do you decide which one of those forms you're going to use to have a go at it, Chris? Um, I'm quite good at separating things, but there is a bit of a bleed that goes on, a bit of mission creep sometimes. Uh, like this week, for example, I have to write a piece on the history of the plastic bag um, for the National Museum of Australia. And that's going to be um, quite a lot of fun to yeah. do, I think. Um, I, I mean, I've got to do a bit of research uh, this time. I'm not going to just uh, do a Camilla Shamsi on this one. And uh, I've got to actually do some research on the plastic bag. Um, but uh, that is a nonfiction piece. But it's true that I'm, I may come across something during um, when I'm on my little rabbit holes, um, finding out about the history of the plastic bag, I, I will often come across maybe an historical character and I'll think, ooh, that's a good little thing to put aside and I'll put that uh, off to one side in a little folder and perhaps that character then will pop up later on you know, in a very minor way um, in a piece of creative fiction. The way my brain works, and I suspect it's probably true for a lot of creatives, is um. It's absolute bedlam in there. It's it's just chaos, um, and um, I never really know what's going on. Um, and the ideas that pop into my head because I, you know, will read an article about something or um, uh, read a, a novel or a short story or a poem, um, and it sparks something in my head, and I have no idea what that's going to end up creating in my head, and it's very frustrating because. I wish it was simpler. And when you have a book out, um, especially the kind of books we've written, and people are asking you questions because they want to know how you did it. How did you do this? What's the what's the process? Can I I want to follow a process and do the same thing you did? And uh, I never know what to say, you know, uh, because the process is is absolutely indefinable for me. Um, it is an absolute like mess. It's a miasma of 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 bizarre notions and cultural references and things I read about you know, 20 years ago that pop into my head. So I never really know how to approach the writing world. That's why I can't be a teacher because I don't know what I'm doing. Like it's, it's, it just seems to somehow come together in some sort of form. And if someone else likes it, I'm, I'm genuinely surprised. So I, I'm probably the worst person in the world to, to ask about, um, about process and that kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, but I guess that kind of answers that question too about research, which is like you were saying, it's all the time. It's happening all the time, hmm. and you just once once you start being a writer, I think that everything everything's copy. Um, yeah, you just are constantly noticing stuff and taking notes about stuff and thinking this will be useful later, or this is a thing, or maybe I'll follow yeah. this. And you go back through your files, and you're like, what was this idea? What was I thinking? I don't even remember thinking about that. Um, yeah, how, how about you, Laura? What is what, what sort of sets you off on a particular path? Uh, well, I was just thinking a little bit about form. Um, like, I, I think I write poems for myself, uh, and my poems are really odd, so that says something about me. They're, they're really strange little things. And I write nonfiction because people keep asking me to. Uh, I really wouldn't write it if, if I didn't get asked to. Uh, and I'm never happy with it, but I'm glad I do it. I think it's a really fantastic form, but I, I never, I don't, I don't like what I, or, or I find what I produce a bit 
a, a bit too hard um, to, for me to read. But with fiction, I think it's the only art form I've ever found where some somewhat everything that is happening in here and the way that I see the world um, and my sort of deep beliefs that I can't ever explain or wouldn't want to explain to anybody, thus the not nonfiction, uh, can be expressed. And it doesn't come out the way I first uh, see it. I get this really clear uh, still image. Uh, and I did study photography and I think maybe it comes from that. I get it. It's like a Cindy Sherman sort of still. If anyone knows her work, she's, you know, she recreates these um, fantastic um, film stills. And it's sort of my job to get it moving again in through the words. Uh, and I'm also open to mistakes and it, it just going off down rabbit holes and up mountains and completely collapsing and me reconstructing it. But what what I get in the end is somewhat uh, a version of what's happening in here. And that's very, very satisfying and yeah, yeah a really nice yeah. feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, James, you're, you're constantly working on like five different things at once. It seems like uh, how, how, what, if, what is it that drives you to write in different forms? Um, I'm sorry, before I begin, I think, Chris, we need to, just as ScoMo came to mean bugger off, we need to make Shamsi into like mating it up. So when people say, how did you research the book? And you, can, you can say, I just Shamsied it up. Like, you know, <laughs> it's become a verb. We need to get it into the Urban Dictionary. Um, I, I just Shamsied this thing up. Um, uh, but, um, uh, yeah, look, I mean, for me, in a weird kind of way, it's never a difficult question. Like, I, I never look at something and think, oh, I don't know whether that's a story or nonfiction. Like, I kind of know when I look at it. Like, some things are, are clearly nonfiction, some things are clearly fiction. Um, but, I, but I suspect it's because you're looking for different things. I mean, I think when I'm looking at fiction, I look at something and I think, oh, that's a great idea for a story. Um, Whereas if it's non-fiction, I'll look at it and I'll think there's something I think is really interesting that connects to some other things. Um, because I think one thing she's always doing with non-fiction is trying to make connections between different between between different ideas. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it's for me, it's a kind of it's a very intuitive thing. I just look at it and I think, well, that's fiction. That's not. But I mean, it is. It is in a weird kind of way. In an odd kind of way, I probably feel a bit like Laura does about my non-fiction. Like I, I write a lot of it, and Sometimes I feel like I'm okay at it, but I feel like I, I mean, God, I know, so often I think I'm terrible at it, but, but I do, I do feel like I'm a fiction writer who writes some nonfiction, if that makes sense. Like I kind of, I, I kind of came to the nonfiction from the fiction. Um, but also for me, one of the differences always is with the fiction, it's such an amorphous, strange kind of, I mean, I think Laura said it's kind of everything that you know goes into it. But with nonfiction, it's often something where you're saying, here is something I want to write about that I can get in the world in two months' time. And it might move some people's ideas about something. It might communicate something to these people that they haven't seen before. It might change something. So there's this kind of sense that the fiction is about trying to explore or explain something to yourself. Often the nonfiction is about trying to to take something to someone else. Does that make sense? So I think there's this one, mm. one's for you, one's for other people. Perhaps that's what I'm trying to say. Sorry, yeah. I, answer, I'm sorry. 
No, but I, I think that's also true because, like, if it's a novel, you you may be with that for two years, five years, seven years, ten years. It it needs to have that. It needs to have some strong function for yourself for you to keep doing yeah. it. Whereas well, an essay, you know, that that might take you a, a couple of months. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, it's also that you know. Nobody reads fiction. Some people do read nonfiction. So the novel is actually for yourself because no one else except for you and the editor and your mother will ever read it. But, yeah. um, which perhaps leads into a We have a question from the audience here from Dorothy Simmons who would like to know, um, and this I think was based on your earlier comment about imagination, James. Um, are we too used to getting answers from our reading rather than finding better questions to ask as a result of it? And, and as a kind of follow-up to that, do the three of you think of yourself as genre-busting writers? You could answer either, both, or none. Who wants to go first? Um, I, I really think that if there was a definition of good fiction for me, which obviously is is up for it, it's a whole other panel. Um, I would say it it's work that asks questions rather than seeking to answer them. To me, if when I read a novel, uh, the, or the novels I read open up doors, um, it's, you know, and I, I feel that in, in all of your work, the doors just fly open. I'm not, I don't know what it is, um, you know, what the definitive answer to, you know, to bringing back uh, extinct creatures is, but I have a billion questions about it and I want to know more um, after reading your works. Um, uh, increasingly, I think there has been a, a kind of knowing, um, canny style that has come through that seeks to answer questions in fiction. Um, and uh, it's sort of, and I, I don't love that work. I find I don't want an author to answer my the questions about the world. That's what I've got and to say. Is either of you like to add to that? I would like you yeah. to. I'm not keen on fiction that lectures me. Um, I, I was never a very good student. And so um, as soon as someone tries to give me a lecture, I, I switch off pretty quick or start pinging elastic bands at my neighbor or something like that. Um, in, in terms of uh, genre busting, it's an interesting question to ask. Um, the literary world is a funny beast in that um, it attempts in order to sell books, to classify them in certain genres, to make it easier for people to know what it is they're buying. And somewhere along the line, I mean, Laura and I have talked about this privately recently, somewhere along the line, literary fiction became the be all end all. This is the most amazing genre and, um, and anything. And, and, the, and these are the books that win prizes and that uh, win the Booker Prize and you're not really, anything else is a lot of rubbish. And I, that really gets on my nerves. Um, because I've always loved um, fiction that crosses quite comfortably between genres. Um, I, I love literary fiction if it has a slight fantastical element to it. Um, and, or I love science fiction that has a very realist element to it. Um, and I admire writers who can do that. Um, or even just you know science fiction that is pure imagination. I, I, I'll read a science fiction novel and think, my God, these are the ultimate writers. They can just, they can create entire worlds and people and languages and places that, that we just cannot conceive of. How did they do this? Like to me, that's the ultimate. And yet they're considered to be the lowest of the low <laughs> in the, 
in the in in the literary world, you know, and so that I, I find that frustrating. I think everyone should be a genre buster, and should be um, should be absorbing all the different genres of writing that are out there and trying to, you know, I wish more writers did that. James, you're you're often cited as a genre busting writer. What 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 you write? <laughs> um, I, to, to go quickly back to what Laura was saying, I mean, I I, I kind of agree. You want books that. It seems to me that writing, people make this mistake of thinking that writing is something where the author kind of knows what they're saying. And it seems to me that writing, the, the act of writing and what's on the page is actually a way of thinking itself. You know, so it's a kind of, you know, what you, both when you're writing a novel, uh, what you're doing is thinking something through and the act of writing is your way of thinking it through. And it's a kind of intuitive, emotional logic that you're kind of working with. And and I think for the reader as well, that's usually what it is as well. I mean, if it's a good book, you go into it and you're kind of absorbed into this world and changed. And it's, 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 if it's giving you clear answers to things, I think it's probably, you know, maybe it's just that I'm never certain what I think about anything, but you know, I, I feel very wary when other people are very certain what they think about things in fiction. Um, yeah, I don't know about the genre thing. I look, I I don't particularly like the genrefication of things. Um, it doesn't seem. I think it is a useful way of talking about books some of the time, but as Chris said, it's often a really restrictive way of thinking about books. Um, in my own work, I don't actually pay very much attention to it. I mean, I feel like what you get from genres are it's they're kind of toolboxes that you work with and so I, i'm very happy to just kind of borrow things from genres you know and and to kind of look at them and think well what does this do what kind of story will it let me tell what kind of questions can i address using the kind of tools of that genre because the genres come with their own toolboxes you know science fiction is particularly good at doing certain kinds of things horror is particularly good at doing certain kinds of things crime is particularly good at doing different things again you know and and depending on the kinds of stories you want to tell those genres will offer will offer ways of doing that you can borrow from them yeah but i don't think they're rigid categories at all they're just kind of i'm I'm now rambling hopelessly I'm going to stop. <laughs> well, I guess I would add to that, even though I'm not on this panel and I'm just meant to be asking you questions, um, that perhaps I, I think for all four of us, we, we all write, we probably all read a great deal. Um, and I think when you're in a position where you're reading loads and loads of books, those things stop being important because mm -hmm. you, you've, you've got time to experiment. You've got time to pick up whatever and have a read of it and see if you enjoy it and it doesn't matter so much. If you've got time to read two books a year, you know you like crime. You're like, I want just give me the crime book. That's what I need right now. I don't have to, I don't have time to suddenly discover this book is narrated by an octopus and have to go find another book because this is rubbish. So yeah, I, I think it is genre is a really useful tool for people who are in a hurry or don't have much time and just want something they'll like. Um, yeah, we're lucky. We get to do a bunch of reading. Um, I, I think ultimately in my work, I'm aiming towards um, writing books that are literary, adventure, horror, science fiction, crime novels. I, I was reading that book. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, but like trying to convince publishers and readers that this is a good thing is is not that easy, you know. Sustainable, which is it? Is it a, is it a crime? Yes, it's also historical, and it's and it's got horror and, and spaceships. Oh my god, what's wrong with this guy? Because I like all kinds of books. Why wouldn't you? I mean, I don't get the idea that 
I don't get the idea that books need to be about a particular thing. Like I like all kinds of books. I want to read books that are, you know, incredibly searing depictions of kind of life right now, you know, for particular people. But I also want to read books like, I mean, I just read the book that won the Hugo, the the, the uh, Memory Called Empire, the, the Arcadia Matan book, which is lovely, you know, and it's set on this weird galactic empire where they make up poems, you know. It's kind of like, it was great. I really enjoyed it, you know. <laughs> I was on a speculative a speculative fiction panel yesterday uh, and uh, it was a great panel, you know, just this sort of um, female, multicultural, passionate panel of very hard out speculative fiction writers and I realised about halfway through or very early on that I had to out myself as, you know, sort of someone who thought of themselves as a literary fiction writer maybe who was a bit speculative um, and it was, it was a real outing and people were a bit shocked and when I mentioned that maybe my next novel, you know, seemed to be going in a what they call speculative way, I got an ovation the audience clapped <laughs> because they felt like and they said we've drawn you over to the dark side so there is <laughs> um so there is you know i i guess i think that what genre does for writers anyway is that it does give people quite a sense of community there's no not really a literary fiction community we sort of work in our, our bubbles and every now and then we see each other on screens and it's really lovely. Um, but there does seem to be very strong communities uh, in science fiction, in the horror community. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I did an event with uh, the fantasy author Raymond E. Feist. Um, he's got a new series of books out and it was before the pandemic, I suppose about maybe about 18 months ago. And it was at a theatre in Melbourne um, and I mean, there was, I don't know how many, there was about 2000 people there or something who turned up to watch him talk for an hour about his book. Um, and the book signing afterwards, um, it went all the way through the theater out onto Collins street, down Collins street, around the corner onto Swanston, past the town hall, down to Burke street. There were thousands of people and they had stacks of his books. And we and I was helping him, you know, and we're like, oh, my God, we're going to be here till two in the friggin morning. And we had to, you know, introduce rules to say, OK, you can only have three books signed because otherwise, you know, and, and this was just one event on his tour. He was off to do Comic-Con or something next. And, oh, my God. This is what this guy's life is like, like literally millions of people read these books. It's quite a shock when you come from the literary fiction world where you go to an event and it's. You know, the, the three of us and six people in the audience all looking at us really sternly, you know, because we're, because they, because, 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 because they think we're shamsying it. <laughs> nice callback. Which we have a question in from the audience. Peter Klein um, says, This is the first time I've heard of any of your books, but I enjoyed listening to you today <laughs> right around the Murray, and I'm going to buy them all. Besides writers' festivals, how do you promote your work to attract readers? James. <laughs> Thanks. Um, uh, well, um, you have a publicist at your publisher who gets you on the radio and you do things like that, radio and maybe TV and uh, books get reviewed in papers and things like that. But increasingly, you're expected to do huge amounts of online stuff, which honestly just makes me want 
I feel like I need a shower after I've done it. Like, you know, they're kind of like, you know, in fact, my publisher was in fact praising another writer who we all know, who they thought was doing an amazing job of what she got. Oh, I should pull the email up. She said something about the kind of, you know, the self-promotion and hustling online that you need to do about kind of performing online about their complete delight that the book's gone into reprint or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm just kind of like, I look at that stuff and I just think, Oh, I feel like gross even thinking about doing that. It, but it is funny, isn't it? I mean, clearly some people that that kind of version of they do of themselves on Instagram, which is increasingly what you have to do to promote books, comes really naturally to them. But, I mean, it would have seemed to me that, that I find it weird that so many writers find it so easy because it just gives me the horrors. <laughs> yeah, none of them find it easy, though, James, but we're all like, all right, let's go. Let's be that person. <sighs> I don't know if writers are the greatest promoters of their books. And I'm not sure many writers are very good at it. And it, it is an interesting question, though, um, Peter's asking, how do you promote your work to attract readers? Because I don't think anyone really knows the answer. Um, and we're, we're asked to do festivals. We're asked to do podcasts, interviews on radio, interviews in the newspaper. If, if you're lucky, you get asked to do these things. Um, but do they work? Who knows? Like, like wow. there's there's no there's no way of measuring, you know, uh, short of you know being Ray Feist and having thousands of people waiting for you in the street. There's it's, it's very hard to measure whether it has like, what has an effect and what doesn't have an effect on book sales. We could be sitting here today chatting, you know, amusing people with our banter, and all of our books sell a thousand copies after this, and we think, oh, okay, how come that didn't happen at the event last week? Um, uh, and how come I spoke, you know, uh, on a podcast that has a hundred thousand listeners, and we only sold two books? Like, there's, there's, it's, it's really difficult to measure what is a good thing to do to promote your work and what is, what is an ineffective thing. It's, um, it's a real head scratcher. It's, I, it's really I, I reckon there are three things that are really successful for promoting books. One is oh, good. Here we go. No, no. One, one is having written the right kind of book that's promotable and having a massive campaign put behind it by your publisher. You know, which is one, and that can sell books. Now, if the book's no good, you won't manage to do it a second time, but you can do it with one book. The other thing that sells books is if it's a book that booksellers decide they really, really love, you know, it will move the book out there because they hand sell that book really hard. And the third thing that sells books, and this is the one that really counts at the end of the day, I think is actually just word of mouth. Like, you know, books that people like, they tell other people about, you know, and so... So if your book's not selling, it's no one likes it. But um, uh, but you know that is <laughs> it's that thing. But I mean, I, but I think that that word of mouth is the thing that you can't. Do you know what I mean? Like you can't fake it, you can't make it. It's just got to happen because people like it, you know. And you know, and I think you see that kind of that kind of thing. Yeah, one of the best-selling fiction titles in Australia this year is um, Pip Williams' book, uh, The Dictionary of Lost Words. That has sold tens of thousands of copies. And you, you you basically never see Pip in the media. She's done very little media for that book. And that's basically word of mouth. Um, yep. Readers buying that book, loving it, and um, and telling their friends about it. Um, well, and then the Trent Dalton book, I think, clearly has sold that way as well. People just love it, you know. Yeah. 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 Yep. I know I had it pressed upon me by many, many people. This, you've got to read this book. This is the best book ever. It's such a great book. Yeah. That's wonderful. Like, that's yeah. wonderful, you know. Yeah, that people are finding books that they love is so good. Um, is that, Laura, did you want to add anything to that? I, I think finding the right publisher 
is really, really important. And it's really not about the big, however many we have in Australia, the big four, the big five. I'm, I'm, never, I'm not very... I'm not very savvy with that stuff. Um, it, it's it's about, I, and I've had this experience this time with Scribe of finding a publisher who is on the same page as me, every page with the book, and who is going to stand behind it and just get it everywhere and has a really good relationship with with um, booksellers and gets you know introduces me to them and so now I have a relationship with some booksellers and it it makes a huge difference and it doesn't mean that it's going to sell billions and billions of copies but knowing that you have someone behind the book and also trusting your publisher and going I just I like what they produce and I believe what they in what they produce and I know they're not going to put out a novel or a book that um, you know that unless they're really behind it um, but yeah I would reiterate just it, it's not necessarily the big publishers do beautiful brilliant stuff and there's a lot of we're so lucky in Australia to have good independent publishers <laughs> and yeah. I'm published by a big four publisher but you know it's okay you know. <laughs> no, they do do great stuff but it's not for every book and it's not necessarily some great stuff there is some great stuff you know? <laughs> <laughs> because I do know people who've gone with the big publisher over um, an independent publisher because you know they're really wowed by by the fact that they are a big publisher and it just it hasn't been the right book for that publisher and it hasn't been the right publisher for that book and you just it just sinks it doesn't it doesn't happen whereas other books like james bradley's obviously have exactly <laughs> the right fit and and just you know it's perfect it's a marriage <laughs> um uh, we'll probably if someone else wants to ask a question i reckon we'll have time for one more after i have asked this question which is you know when you're like using Windows and you get a little annoying pop-up message that says, um, would you recommend this experience to your friends? I wonder if, how likely are you to recommend being a writer to your friends? <laughs> <laughs> People you genuinely oh. care about, would you tell them, yeah, do, do it, be a writer, it's great. James? <laughs> Um, it probably depends on what day you catch me. <laughs> oh, look, I mean, I think I, I, I've been really blessed. I've been working as a writer for like basically doing not much else for like 20 something years. Um, and that has been really difficult at times. Like it's been difficult both emotionally and certainly financially lots of the time. Um, but it's also been wonderful. You know, I spent a really long time doing what I love. I, you know, I get to, I, I spent my entire life growing up thinking my dad was a philosopher and thinking I don't want to end up like my father. My, my whole life was about not being my father. And then after he died, I realised that I spent my time sitting in a room full of books, reading and writing, which is exactly what he did. So despite my attempt not to become my father, I became my father. But yes, no, so yeah, look, I mean, I would recommend it in that sense. But, you know, yeah. In a qualified way. It might depend on what day you catch me. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Laura? Uh, I, I really like what James, what James, James Carver. I've just, you see, I, see how I think about Raymond James Carver. Bradley. I just, Raymond. <laughs> yeah, Raymond Carver. Um, I like what Raymond Carver has to say about writing. Like, if you're not going to put heaps and heaps and heaps of work into it, there are so many other good things you could be doing in the world. You could be making a lot of money. You could be saving the environment, um, you know. And so if someone wanted to write, if they really, really love sitting for years and working on the same thing um, and 
then and they're going to put their everything and they're going to rip themselves to shreds over it, um, then absolutely they should be a writer. But otherwise, I, I don't know, go on, you know, go and solve world hunger or something. Learn the clarinet. <laughs> yeah, learn the clarinet. Chris, how about, how about you? I think you probably know that you are a writer from a, you know, a fairly young age and um, it's not something you can do very much about necessarily. Um, in one of the, in one of Jules Verne's novels, uh, Mysterious Island, um, and it's a bit of a spoiler, about halfway through they realize that Captain Nemo is living, is living underneath the island. But um, when, they, when they meet Captain Nemo, he's been living in, uh, you know, absolute isolation on this island, apart from humanity for a long time, life of a hermit. And they ask him, you know, wasn't it terribly lonely? And I always thought of his response is very similar to what you might say as a writer. And he said, um, isolation affords me um, independence of thought and freedom of action. And I think being a writer is quite a similar experience. Um, I, as a writer, I feel quite free as a person and freedom is quite an important thing to me. Um, and it's taken me many years to get to the point where I am just a writer and that's all I do. Um, and I've never felt better in my life now that I've actually got to that point. And yes, it has its ups and downs and it's financially completely unstable. But as we're now learning, everything is completely unstable. <laughs> so um, being a writer is actually not that different to anything else now. It's, um, uh, I'd rather be a writer than a pilot, for example, uh, at the moment. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do with all their, with all their book learning. Um, uh, so... Sure, be a writer if you want to embrace a bit of chaos in your life. Um, that's what it is to be human, after all. So you might as well, you might as well embrace it. Yep. I, I. Yeah. Did you want to say something else, Laura? Oh, just that in New Zealand, the pilots are becoming train drivers. That's, they've found a they've found a place for the pilots. <laughs> is that because trains were the only industry that was as highly unionised as the airline industry? <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> I would like to thank all of you very much. Uh, please, everyone, go to the Dimmicks online bookstore and buy a copy of James Bradley's Ghost Species, Laura Jean Mackay's The Animals in That Country It Doesn't Look Like This, and also, hit, can we see a real one? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. And Chris is back there somewhere. <laughs> Sure, and sure. if you're in Albury, Dimmicks will mail them to you for free. If you're elsewhere in Australia, they'll send them to you at a discount. Um, if you would like to find out what's on next, there's one more session left. And uh, go to writearoundthemurray.org.au to log in and watch it. It's called, I think, Future Tense. Uh, oh, I should pay more attention. Um, and while you're there, go in the online survey. You can win a six-pack of festival titles and a dashing tote bag to carry them in. Thank you all so much for being here for this. This was a really great chat, and I really love your openness and your willingness to answer silly questions and how you all chatted to each other. It was really fun. You're all great. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, Jane. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, everyone. everyone.